like a a 60 minute timer on and just say what can we say in an hour about Henley where it's good where you should go where you should go how you should watch if you can't go um, is, this, is this because one of us and we're not going to mention any names here might have been saying some things about you know people being at Henley that they, they shouldn't and how it's become an upper class bun fight and Tez have you brought Tez back in to redress the balance and say it is a force for good in the universe I, I think there's a little bit of that. I, I, th I think I, I think that we need to provide both sides of things, and I, I think we need to remind people why Henley is such a deeply loved institution and why it's been going on for 150 years, and why it can be one of the happiest. I'm going to say five days, but it's not five days. It's six days of some people's summer. I, I, I think that's probably a. Uh, something we should be talking about at this time of year rather than having a moan because we're very good at having a moan but we don't always like go around and take this is the joy of henley episode the joy so. of henley yeah what why, why henley is a brilliant place to go um and let's face it you and i both think it is <laughs> yeah it's a brilliant place to go because because when the regatta's not on it's a, it's a lovely little village in and you know in the south are we going to talk about some rowing as well? Okay. I think I think we should probably talk about the rowing as well. I'm. It's in between because I got really excited for qualifiers, and in between then and now, it feels like the kind of dog days. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not going to be able to go to the regatta, but obviously I'm going to be watching it hugely. Look, massively looking forward to it. I feel really involved in the regatta. I feel like I know what's going on. Literally, what I think we should talk about. If, if, if I'm if I'm going to put down like three things to talk about, it's what is just so special about Henley as a sporting event. What's so special about Henley just as a social event? Um, what what are the most enjoyable ways to watch Henley if you can't sit in the progress boxes? Um, and you know if you if you can't make it if you can't make it how how best to watch you know also just kind of like those stories you, you know that story you told me about the quad that just came over from canada yeah the bloke and his three sons <laughs> just like right we're just gonna enter elite quads well this is a this is it raises an interesting question because i was under the impression some time ago it was um, in the early days of the um, when I was on the signals team. Um, the guy in charge it was it's a different guy from from now. And and I'm, I remember mentioning this to him and, and saying, "There's a essentially a scratch quad in the Queen Mother," and I and I was surprised that the stewards would allow that. But the, um, this guy Brian Colborn, he he said, "Well." Why shouldn't they be in it? Because if you if you look at the entry criteria, all of the all of the top events, all of the open events, they're just that they're open, so anybody can enter them. Whereas I was thinking, well, you know, what would happen if City of Sheffield entered the Grand? You know, would they would that entry be accepted? Well, there's there's always three spaces in the Grand, isn't there? Well, there, I think the maximum they can have is eight. But I've never seen more than five in it. Yeah. So there's all, there's there's space, but you know, obviously, if they if 
I think it would be unusual if they, let's, let's say they had um, nine entries, all of which were international eights yeah. representing their countries. I think it would be very unusual for them to require any of them to qualify. I, but I guess that's one of the um, one of the things about Henley that the stewards have the final say, and they don't have to kowtow to any rule book other than their own. Yeah, it's not a British rowing event. It's not a world rowing event. It's theirs. In fact, the rules of the rules of uh, or the original rules of FISA were based on the rules of the, of the stewards of Henley Royal Regatta. Yeah. Fair Can enough. I just wind back? And this might be me being northern and certainly scatological and possibly torpedoing any chance that I ever had of membership. But am I the only one of the three of us who finds the idea of four Canadians in the Queen Mother just tirelessly entertaining? I mean, I know she liked a gin and a horse racing, but this is going too far, surely. Stop it, surely. Aaron. Aaron, stop it. No, that will be struck from the record. Okay, um, sorry. No, serious point, though. But I think I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, well, you're, you're, you're a young man, Tez. Once you've seen the world <laughs> like what I have, you'll, you'll, you'll have seen some terrible things. I think Tez raises a very important point, which is, as, as I did my little piece about sharp, you know, the difference between sharp practice, pushing the limit and cheating and, and what have you, Henley stands alone in terms of it, it's, it has its own set of rules and its own sets of criteria, and it's very much up to those who run it. How, it, how it's run, which is one of the things that make it the regatta that it is and the event that it is. Yeah, and but I mean, it as as I've said before, it is it is the most successful, most long lasting, with the possible exception of the boat race rowing event in the world. Tyne regatta. Durham regatta were there before it. Harry Clasper was Chester winning regatta. medals there when Henry yeah, was twinkle in a steward's eye. Chester, Chester regatta, 1733. Strictly speaking, are any of those international brands that sort of like make... You will find Geordies all over the world. Hundreds of thousands of pounds in profit Harry every single win, year. Harry Clasper used to win hundreds of pounds in his races, and you'll find Geordies in every corner of the globe. We're like rats. You can't get rid of us once we're out. Once um, we're out, we're in Australia, we're in New Zealand, we're in Canada. We're not in the Queen Mother, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, I mean, for the record, I think it's, I think it's marvellous that, um, that these guys from Canada were in the Queen Mother. I mean, they... They, I remember because I was on the, one of the signal boxes for their race, and I could see the smiles on their faces. They rode past miles behind their opposition. You know what's not to like? They, they, they got a huge ovation from the, from the enclosures. So you know, because they all had the, in the program, anyone who looked in the program, they all have, they all have the same surname. So was, you know, so people knew that that this was the case. They knew yeah. there was something going on. There was something special going on. But I just, you know, it's it's great. You know. But, uh, we, we were talking, you know, all the things about what make Henley special. The first, I mean, I have this uh, this abiding memory from the first time I was there in 1997 of walking across the bridge and just looking down and at the infrastructure. And I had this feeling that I was home. Yeah. Like, um, just like the boat, the boat tents, it just, they look like they've, they're there all the time. But of course, they're very ephemeral. Um, and the same goes for the floating grandstand, and the same goes for the course. It looks like, you know, how how on earth do they put that? How how is that done? I mean, it, well, I mean, I know how it's done. They people work like like hell to do it, and it takes ages. They start putting the course in in April, and 
you know the rest of this um the rest of the infrastructure follows at you know at a certain pace but you know the stewards own now um it wasn't the case with the marquees and stuff for the enclosures but the stewards now own not all not just the the course installation all the booms and all the piles um but also all the tentage in the stewards enclosure and the regatta enclosure they own all that now and it's all nicer and cleaner and you know it hasn't been somewhere else for for something else um and so it's like it's just like in the last 20 years let's say it's just a bit sharper and so for instance the the line where the boat tent official is and the uh, the press office that was just basically a tent with holes in and now it's like a two-story office block yeah yeah and um you know they've, they've got new they, they, they steve redgrave said this matt pinson and steve redgrave did a podcast recently and it was essentially pinson asking redgrave questions and they were all really interesting but it was like get, getting the chairman's point of point of view and memories um, and, he, and Red, one of the one of the stories Redgrave told was that somebody who would, uh, I think from Harvard perhaps, who hadn't been to the regatta for twenty years or thirty years, he says it's the same. He says it's, it's the same as I remember it. However, in you know it isn't it isn't the same. It's just the the, the kind of the, the the improvements that have been made, and they always are improvements. Um, they just go to enhance what is already a brilliant thing i mean for instance now when on the coverage uh, from the like from the drone and from the the cameras all the way up the course the henry royal regatta brand that you know the blue uh, the blue on white with the hrr is very obvious it's it's all you know it's it's everywhere and there's a huge one you know when you get the when you get the shots of the finish there's a huge one on the side of the press tent and there's one on the side of the 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 uh the, the thing that covers the um, the power unit for the starting for the start people, there's one on there. Uh, it's on it's on all the blades. They put branding on all the blades on all the boats. You know that didn't happen when when I used to go there regularly. So that's that's great. Um, and you know, I'm sort of hogging the conversation a bit here, but like we, we were talking about the installation of the course. And the, the fact that the course is there, it's one of the things that makes Henley what it is because no other course in the world has a solid uh, barrier to, uh, at either side. Not, 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 only just, not only no lane marking, so no boys up the middle, but something where if you even think about hitting it, then you're going to be in serious trouble. And, yeah. and we've seen, we've seen um, this week, there's been uh, pictures put up from qualifying of the remains of some oars, so broken oars. Uh, people break their oars, <laughs> they, they literally do. There was yeah, one guy yeah. who snapped his, there, was two, there were two uh, pictures of, of one, one of the handle end and one of the loom of, the, of, a, of a blade, which I, think, which I think was from an eight. And this collision um, wrecked two of the riggers on the eight and broke at least one of the blades, uh, clean in two. It broke where the handle goes into the loom and it broke because the the spoon would be or the loom of the blade was pressed against the pile and people call these the boot you know the, the booms but it's actually the uprights they're called piles and the booms are the bits that float in between them and so when people hit stuff it's usually the piles that's that's what does the damage because they're incredibly solid um 
and so it, it, it pressed the it pressed the oar handle against his body and broke it. And then you imagine how you know, that takes a lot of force to do that. So it must have injured him. Just to leap in there, Tez and Loon, for a couple of points. The first thing you said when you when you first went over the bridge and it felt like home or coming home. I, I have to um, completely agree with that. I, I on my first Henley. I drove down with Mark Hancock and we came over the bridge in, in the gloaming as the twilight was setting and we just slowed down and kind of drank it all in. And it would, it just seemed somewhat magical. And I, I remember just a sense of, and this is going to sound very odd and I'm sure I've sounded very odd in a lot of Broken Oars podcasts, but it was just a sense of being a, spe- of a, a special place and being part of something. Now, I know that the English and the British are, are prey to nostalgia. We're prey to a golden age, the green and pleasant land, this fortress built by nature for herself and all of those kind of things. But when you touched upon that, that Harvard man, if it was a Harvard man who came back after a gap of 20 years and went, it's exactly the same, even though it wasn't, what they're responding to was a, was a sense of something permanent and continuous that 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 goes through time and evolves through time but also um has a line of continuity stretching right back for the length and duration of the of the regatta so i i did very much get a sense when i went down to do it for the first time that i was i was becoming part of something that stretched back in history and as a as a rower and being aware of the regatta's history and i'll i'll you know point out about tyne and durham regattas you know getting tens of thousands are on the on the banks back in the, the days of Harry Clasper and all that kind of stuff. But it, it was a sense of you're, you're entering into something that has a line of continuity back to the past. It's, it's important for rowers. There's a sense of say, I mean, it's my favorite, one of my favorite pieces of water that I've ever rowed on. That, that stretch between Marsh Lock and Hambledon, I just love it. And it's, it's like sacred water. And the regatta is like sacred water for rowers, which is why so many try to reach it. I mean, what was your first impression, Loon? Did you get a sense, or was it just like another, this is another chance to show my, my biceps and how mighty they are? It's a spiritual home. Mm. It's like, I basically consider the boat tents in the same way that I consider the Barmouth Estuary, which is the part of the world where my mother grew up in North Wales. I'd just like to point out when you say, Oh, he's half Welsh. No, I'm half Goch. I'm from North Wales, not he's West North, England. He's a North um, And there, there's, there's a big difference. They're basically two different countries. The easiest way to get from North Wales to South Wales is to drive into England, drive south and drive back into Wales. But... You know, literally the place where I spent my childhood summers, you know, full of kind of like greens and greys and the blue of the sea and all that kind of thing. Essentially, Henley is as magical to me as that. It's like a sense memory, isn't it? Yeah, it's as important. in different ways, it is as beautiful. Um, and I, I think what you were saying about, you know, looking back to a golden age, we have, I, I think everybody has the requirement to have that dream 
even if it is only a dream of something that is good and is almost perfect in their life that they can continue to aspire to. I mean, we can get metaphysical and we can talk about like the Christian concept of heaven and it's always around the corner and there's no rest as this side of heaven, etc. But that is, you know, again, Henley is this place that I believe I will return to at some point and I will sit there and I'll probably only drink lemonade because these days day drinking for me just doesn't work. But, you know, sitting on the banks on a Tuesday or a Wednesday when it's not that crowded and just watching all these crews just vomit past. And literally, this is the moment of their lives. Um, and it, it's not it, it's not kind of. I'm, I'm sure all the rugby players and the triathletes and whoever else listens to this program. Will tell me differently but i don't know of anything else where amateur athletes people who are never going to be wearing a gb vest people who are never going to be paid for their effort actually have so much investment in this one thing and can race there it's like tennis players getting to play at wimbledon i i, I just think it's a very very magical event a very very magical place it doesn't hurt that it's one of the you know, nicest parts of southern England. Are we basically saying that this is the Camelot of rowing? This is like the Tintagel. This is this is where the Lady of the Lake comes out of the water, clutching the Dreisgacker, and then gets mowed down by a Canadian quad heading in the direction of the Queen Mother. I'm I'm going to go with its care paravel. Oh, nice! I see what you did there, Narnia I'm, reference. I'm, I'm going full Narnia. It's it's part of a different world. I know there should be an old-fashioned lamppost at the top of Henley Hill. Um, and as you come down it, you're in a different world, basically. It's, it's five to ten. Um, we've gone full Narnia. Lovely. Yeah, afraid so. But, yes, anyway, enough about Metaphysics. City Reminiscences. Tez, tell us about your favourite place to watch the racing from. Well, I was going to just, um, just going back a bit, I was going to talk about, you mentioned, you know, the the, the elitism and, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I think it has to be. It is very elitist in terms of the people that win are outstanding athletes. And it's because these outstanding athletes are there. That's why it's so worth it for, you know, also runners like me to try to row there. Yes. Um, when I when, when we took an eight uh, from City of Sheffield and they've never tried to qualify an eight, they've never managed to get an eight together. Uh, ever since then they have had smaller boats fours and I mean I think two entries in, even in the goblet um, but you know as you I'm, I'm sure you're well aware um, getting eight, eight together from a small club is difficult and we were only together for a very short time but you know if you qualify you know our, if we qualified that would have been our gold medal and I think yep. and I think for a lot of crews every year that's the case because it means that if you qualify, then that means that you're going to row at Henley and then you will have rowed at Henley and nobody can take that away from you. I mean, for instance, for instance, race, race one tomorrow is at 9.30 a.m. University of Bristol on the Berkshire station, Durham University A on the Buck station. Mm. One of those crews is going to be out of that event by 9.37. Yeah. 
okay? And that will be it. That, that Henley will be over. But it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't necessarily matter. Because they've gone down the track. They've gone, they've gone down the track. Henley. And, and they, they have rode at Henley just as much as anyone who um, has a race in the middle session of the day where there's a big crowd or, you know, maybe just after, after the tea break and, you know, there's more applause. And it's, just, it's the same thing. It doesn't matter whether the enclosures are full. And they, ne- they never are on the first day. You know, I mean, okay, it's starting later this year. That normally would be nine o'clock on the first day. And then it's half eight for the next two days, but now it's a bit later because of the, um, because of the extra day. So, you know, it's, it's early. I mean, it's, you know, it's early, but it's, it's still, even if you don't get a rousing applause, it's still, you, st- you still have rode at Henley and that's the, that's a big deal. And now I still regret never having rode at Henley because I, I've only ever rode in the qualifiers, but because of all, because of the signaling duties that I've done and, you know, other stuff around the sport, I feel as though I deserve um, to feel a part of the event, you know, and it's, it's hugely important to me, uh, you know, my kind of knowledge of the ins and outs. I mean, like I, I've, I've viewed the sport of rowing through a lot of different windows and you get a very, very good kind of like a hologrammatic overview of the whole thing, the whole sport and how it works and how it goes together. And I'm very proud of that knowledge. It's taken a long time to accrue it. Um, so in terms of elitism, I think it's fantastic. And the, the quality of the crews this year, I mean, for instance, in the Diamond Skulls, Cameron Buchan, who used to row, admittedly sweetbore, for Britain, um, he's been in single for a couple of years now, I think. And he, and he actually, in 2019, he actually rode in the Diamond Skulls, he sculled in the Diamond Skulls. Um, but this year, he didn't even qualify. Mm. And, he, and, he, and he was beaten by seven other people. You know those that qualified and and, uh, and a few and a few others who also didn't qualify themselves and um, you know the, even the calibre of the people who didn't qualify like I I, I live in Sheffield as as you know and so Sheffield University took an eight down they also took a four for the Prince Albert um, but they were you know a fair distance in terms of time off qualifying but the eight were only six seconds away from qualifying now they were the equal tenth fastest non qualifiers out of about 50 boats. So they did all right. No, they did really well. I mean, six seconds is approximately two lengths, okay? Approximately. Mm-hmm. Now, if you imagine that, so imagine the fastest qualifier crossing the line, their bow ball up the line, and then you've got the length of that boat, a length of clear water, and then Sheffield University's bow. And in that distance, you could you have to fit 10 other boats. Yeah. So, so that's the, you know, that, that's how hard it is to, to qualify. Uh, it's a matter of tenths of a second between, you know, and then it gets, you know, the gaps get a little bit longer towards the end, but it's just so hard. And so if you do manage to qualify, it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a real achievement. It's, it's like winning somewhere else. Yeah. It's like winning yeah. somewhere else. And it's, it's something that I said when I, when I put together the episode on, you know, the difference between cheating and, and sharp practice that when Loon and I, I went and, and I, I went again, um, it was, there are probably some clubs where Henley qualification is a given. You know, Oxford Brooks are doing really well at the moment. Tyne had a great recent decade. Uh, Durham have had have had good patches a, a, a little while back. I know that Agecroft, when I came into it, had a generation of outstanding rowers who put together something like five or six 
semis and a final and, and ended up coming up against Leander. So there was a, a history there. But me actually getting there, when Dennis decided to split the, his top eight into two fours, gave us a chance to get through. It was the culmination of years of work. And it wasn't just me working. It was everyone in the boat. It was the coaches. It was the entire club for a period of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years building to that point where instead of, you know, one exceptional eight getting in, we got three boats in and we and we we pre-qualified. And it is massive. And I, I've I've downplayed it and Loon and I have made comic mileage out of the fact that basically we saw Green Lake on the start line. Um but the reality didn't see you for another seven minutes. Yeah, the reality was we we got to go down the track at Henley. And then the the next year, you know, having previously beaten Bedford um they you know fair play to them they beat us again it was closer but i've 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 been i've been to henley twice been to henley twice and there i know rowers that i rode with who were much better than me they were technically better they had faster erg scores they were more powerful um they they never got to go and i did because of a, a concerted effort by a very good club with very good people in it and that's something to aspire to and celebrate just to um, maybe change tack slightly, Tez, when you said, you know, the first race tomorrow by 9.37, their Henley's going to be over, but another side of Henley's going to begin for them, surely. And that has to be the, the reason why we go, which is pina coladas, millionaire heiresses, and dancing yeah. at Mahikis. That's the real Henley, yes? Yeah, yeah, they'll, be, yeah they'll, they'll be in Mahiki that night. I'm sure they will. And, uh, and there we go, Nate. They'll be talking about their race and like, yeah, I'm a Henley Oarsman and mm -hmm. it's just competitors it, it, badge. They competitors badge on the on the lapel still. Yep, yep. They're going to feel great. They're going to feel great. And that's part of it, isn't it? The it's it's the the racing is of a very high standard. Even if you go out on the first day, it's you, to get there is like is like winning somewhere else, and it's still of a high standard on the from the first day right the way through to the finals. But there is the social side and the, and there's and there's the it's almost like a coming together of the clans in rowing terms because you do get boats coming from from far and wide but there's also the whole kind of it's a little bit like um ascot before it became a tarts picnic and wimbledon <laughs> and that kind of thing you know everyone comes together and puts on their summer frock and their hat and you know the ladies and myself hitch up their their, their hemline so that, you know to try and get them down past the, the stewards, and then hitch them back up once they're inside. Um, it's the better looking crowd at Henley, isn't it? Let's let's face it, than at Ascot. Uh, you're going to get no argument from me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I'm. Yeah, I'm. I'm just. I don't think you can disagree with the sort of like, and and also one one thing that I will always remember is kind of like. The fact that it's not just kind of these slightly also rans like me and Aaron that sort of go out on the first day, you know, you can have the guys from near us dancing in the bar on a Wednesday night because they ran into an even better crew. And you've got yeah. these like massively tall Dutch guys going around. <laughs> It must be really hard. I mean, to genuinely, like kind of six well, those at seven. Like, each one of them. It must, be, it must be. It must be awfully wearing after having gone through a couple of tough rounds to you know be to, to be having to be wearing all these um, these people hanging on you. Oh no! They, well, there were yeah. some pictures of um, Mahe Drysdale holding the um, the pineapple cup for the diamond skulls. 
in in Leander, and he was just surrounded by people who just wanted a part of him. And you know, he, he had a he looked like he had a coat hanger in his mouth. He was loving it. And why? <laughs> why wouldn't he? I know. I I know that when I know that when Agecroft won the Brit, even though they they'd been to all those semis and finals, it was it it was not nailed on, and it was not nailed on to the extent that when they actually won. Dennis had to start running around the enclosures looking for people with blazers to hand them to the winning crew so that they could actually go up and look look uniform <laughs> as they collected their, their their cup. Right. Um so you know it is it is a rare thing and, and the the social thing's great and that's that's whether you as I have done whether you sit with the plebs up near the start line and you dangle your toes in in the water and it's it's you know your your bacon and eggs for breakfast is is a kind of um Schweppes gin and tonic from from um, the shop just on the court, you know, around the back of Bell Street, or whether you're you're down having the expensive avocado and prawns in the in, in the, the posh seats. All human, you know, Johnson said of London, all human life is here, and I think that Henley on any day, if you walk from the top to the bottom of the course at any point in the day, you will always see something different, and all human life is there, and it's 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 wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. I just chime in with with some something here and about um, it's something you, you we slightly addressed it in the last um, the, the last podcast that I did with you two years ago, and it was um, you asked me about the physical geography of the um, of the handy site, and I don't mm. I don't because I've I've listened to it back a time or two, and I I don't think I did it justice really. So to describe it, the the the, the stewards enclosure is. Um, on land owned by the stewards and it's on the Berkshire bank, which is the, the kind of non town side. So uh, out of regatta time, it's just all fields and there's mm. the village of Revenant a bit further down. So going from, going from Henley bridge and going downstream. So going with this, with the stream, um, there's a couple of houses just tucked under the, um, Henley bridge. Uh, one of them has got, I don't, you know, one of them, one of them has got a boating pontoon. It must be worth an absolute, it's not a big house, just, you know, fairly small, yeah. must be worth an absolute fortune. And there's another even smaller house next to that. And then Leander Club. And then from the wall at Leander, so Leander Club, large clubhouse, um, it's got a brick wall surrounding it. And then the land from, from there on until you get to the next lot of kind of big trees which is where, where the, the regatta enclosure ends, that all of that land and the land behind it, so that's Lion Meadow. Yeah. And I think um, the other side of Remenham Lane, Butlersfield, they might own that, I'm not sure, but they definitely own Lion Meadow. And they, that, the land they own includes the car park at Leander. So if you're, even if you're a Leander member, you can't park in there during the regatta. So they own all of that land. Now, from the end of the regatta enclosure all the way to the start and beyond, is owned by different people. So next to the regatta enclosure, there is the land, uh, I think is owned by Sir Walter Scott. I think that's, that's the guy's name. It's just like some like really massively minted person. And it's where Mahiki now is every year. That when, it, when I was a boy, when I was first down there, that was a car park. They used to use that land for parking cars on. But obviously Mahiki, I would imagine, would pay them a lot more money. So they own that bit. And then, then you get... Uh, there's a little hump bridge which goes over the that's their access to their wet boathouse and then it's uh Remenham club which is a um a members club for clubs of the tideway and it's like seven of them uh, so molsey oh, i hope we don't miss one out molsey um thames rowing club london rowing club vesta twickenham 
stains. Can anyone help me out with the last one? No, you're on your own here, Tess. I'm not, I'm not having the boys coming around if I get oh, one I'm wrong. On. Kingston. Oh, yeah. Did I say Kingston? Yes. You no, said no. it now. Well, I hope we didn't say it twice. Anyway, so seven, seven clubs. So then, so that's Remington Club, and that's a private member's enclosure. Um, by the way, uh, there's a thing There's a thing in badges. That you might, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm wearing my two metal badges. You did see it. You've got your tin on. You've got your tin, your tin on. Yeah, so, so if you have a... Well, back in the day, if you, like when I first started going there, if you had these two and Remenham, then that's called full metal jacket. Um, but now Upper Thames also do their own metal badges, so I guess you need to have that as well for a full metal. Johnny jacket. come lately. They, the they, just, they just want to get involved, don't they? Upper Thames yeah. Iron Club. But Lewin, uh, they have to learn you can't manufacture history. You, you've either got it or you haven't. You've either yeah, got it or you haven't. I, I, I don't know. Give, give them 50 years and we'll come back and talk to them again. So Upper Thames is next to Remenham, and then um, and then you get to Remenham Farm. Uh, so there's lots of there's like burger vans and uh, the kind of stuff you get at like any normal fair or I don't know like a motorbike event or something like that. So there's just like a lot of that, and then there's a big sort of open field with um with uh, shops on there, all temporary, of course. And none of this land is owned by the stewards. So all of all of these enterprises, like, of course, Upper Thames are there for their own benefit, and so are Remenham Club. But all the rest, of, all the rest of it, um, is is bonus money that goes to the owners of that land. And none of it is they don't contribute to the regatta in any way, which is a real shame. Yeah, that's a real shame that the stewards don't own more of the land. I think they had an opportunity to buy Remenham Farm. But the Copus, uh, the Copus uh, partnership owned that, and now that's the, that's where all the kind of hospitality is, like towards the start, that whole area. So arm bar and all that. So yeah, so, so so the stewards, the stewards own the land I've described already, plus some land at Forley. Sorry, on the box on the Bucks Bank, so on the opposite side from most of the stuff, they own some land there. They also own Temple Island. Um, so anyway, the point I wanted to get across is that is that all of the stuff that you see, not all the stuff, not all the stuff you see from the end of the regatta enclosure all the way to the start, is contributing towards the regatta. In fact, quite the opposite. It's kind of uh, piggybacking off off the back of it. So yeah. from the regatta enclosures up over, are people just kind of you know making money on the fact that the you know the racing starts further up and taking advantage of the fact that the regatta is on? Can I ask maybe? Um, a somewhat technical or, or administrative question. I guess that they're always going to be there because the regatta always tends to draw a good crowd. But if the stewards own the course and or the stewards set the course, is there if one of the landowners actually went, no, actually, uh, you, you can't have it this year, that would just mean that the racing, the first part of racing would happen to relative silence before it reached the enclosures. Well, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure they wouldn't because there's no, there's, there's no reason for them to do that. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they wouldn't because of the commercial imperative. But well, the thing, well, well, first of all, they can't clo- they can't close off the side of the river to stop because it's the Thames Path. It's like it's, yeah, it's a public walkway, it's a public yeah. right way. There is a um, there's an addendum to the uh, to the bylaw which allows the stewards to close the path between the gate. At the end, at the at the where, where Leander finishes, where Leander Wall is, yeah. So the entrance of the boat tent enclosure, from there to the end of the regatta enclosure, yeah. Is, 
um, that's part of the stewards' enclosure. But that's a, that's a, they had to get special dispensation. So the, the rule is that when you go through the um, through the gate into the boat tent area, it says that there's a laminated notice that says how they're able to do this because every year they get they get people who turn up purely to try to exercise their right away over the Thames path mm. but for that for the duration of the regatta or you know it's when the regatta is on so because they don't have to, because the, the dates the, the, uh, the dates of it don't change year to year the finals day is always the first Sunday in July but of course it could be you know X Y or, or Z date so when the regatta is on this shall ha- this shall be the case and so you have to walk Back round the back of Leander, along back. along Remenham Lane, and uh, and down onto the you know where the where the path is open again. Can I ask another technical question uh, that then Taz? Yeah. Uh, am I right in thinking that the Thames is a public waterway as yeah. well? Um, or yeah, is that don't, a- yeah, the stewards the stewards own the infrastructure that that goes to demark the course, but they don't, of course, own the course itself because that you know the Thames is a, is a as a put, yeah, which which is why on the other side of the booms you get all of the gin palaces and everybody kind of lashing yeah. up and down. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So uh, no, like when the course isn't there, then uh, because of the keep right rule, it's like this kind of uh, it's the, called the rules of the road in like watermanship. Yeah, they to the right. So so if you're doing an outing in Henley uh, and there's no course there, then you'd go. Um, you rode down what would be normally the course, and then you come round the other side of Temple Line and then row back up. Yeah, you always keep keep right, but because um, obviously because yeah, the regatta has a lot of history, and so they're they're allowed by the the uh, the uh, environment agency, which is the one they're the people who police the water. They they change the circulation pattern. Mm. Because when we when we rode the length of the Thames and we came down, obviously it wasn't actually it was only. When did we do it? Last week in July. So it wasn't that long after the regatta had been on. The, everything was already down, um, and we ended up rowing through the. We ended up rowing up there, uh, and they had the boys out for uh, town and visitors. Um, and it was just, it was just a very different landscape. It was just a very different. It was just a very different landscape. But that explains why you have the, you know, the gin palaces and the uh, the cruisers going up and down as racing's kind of going on, which I guess is why the booms are are there to kind of try and break, to try and break up the wash. Yeah, that's exactly why they're there, yeah. 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 So do you have a favourite, um, a favourite Henley race that you've seen or a favourite, and then maybe a favourite Henley memory of yours? Um, well, I was in the launch to follow a, um, a race and it was I think it was Strathclyde Rowing Club or it might have been St Andrews Rowing Club and it was a, a race in the Prince of Wales the the men's intermediate quads and I got the ticket for the boat because this is a you know this is another little known I think a possibly little known fact if you rock up like in the half an hour before a boat for a certain race is due to depart if there are any unclaimed uh, spectators tickets for that then you can have them you know on a first come first serve basis so I decided to go and try and get myself one and so it and, and you basically take the first one you're offered mm. um, and so so I did and it happened to be this particular race and it was a really great race I can't remember who their opposition was but there, there was a guy called Jock Wishart who was sitting opposite me in the thing and he was like he's like a really big noise in Scottish rowing in, in, in rowing but 
So I didn't even find out who it was until afterwards. I didn't realise who I was in the presence of. But he was like the kind of chairman of the club that this crew were from. And they were immaculately good, but their opposition were faster. They went and they went off really, really hard. And the Scottish crew went through their opposition um, probably about three quarters of the way up the course. And it was a very, very close finish. And it was a fantastic race. And the, and the enclosure was full and the crowd were going bananas. And it was, you know, it, that was pretty good. Um, get a ticket if you can. Um, well, no, don't, you shouldn't have said that, Tez, because now that, that, that little loophole will be it. There'll be queues going, you know, down the, you know, down, round, over the bridge, back into town. <laughs> Oops. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know. Share the love. I, I, I think, well, anyway, we're, we're, we'll see. People will do what they do. So, I mean, if it, where, where is your favourite place on the course? Whether it's to watch or just to sit or... Well, there's, there's so many. You get... You get um, I mean, I've been, I've been on literally... I've been on all of the signalling stations. Uh, so the quarter mile is really good because that's the first one. The crews are usually very close together there, even in a really mismatched race. They're normally overlapping, so that's good. Um, the barrier is a timing point, so you hear the coxes say, okay, that's the barrier, you know, now we go for the push, or, you know, they might have started their push just ahead of the barrier. And then, you know, you've got the flag to wave, and that's important because it's part of the timing and all that kind of thing. Um, Foley is uh, cool. The Foley um, signal station used to be on the on the Bucks, uh, the, yeah, the, the Bucks side. Um, and I don't know why they ever put it there, because... It's where the river, it's where the distance between the booms and the, the bank is its narrowest. And so having the 40 station there made it even narrower. Now it's, of course, on the on the uh, Berkshire station. And now they've got the big platform where the, where one of the drones uh, lands and takes off from. So that's, that's right adjacent to um, to the to the 40. So so that's great at 40 because that's another push point for the for the crews and then you get when you if you're on the like the, then there's a three quarter mile and if you're on the mile and the eight, the mile post and the mile and the eighth post they're both facing the enclosures so you feel as though you're kind of right in the middle of the regatta and then there's a progress board um oh by the way right this is just another thing you know as i said last time that, that henley is um it's a greater than the sum of its parts and it's parts of myriad I was in a restaurant in Henley one time and we got chatting to these, this guy and his wife and we we're talking about, oh, you know, what's your role at the regatta? What do you do? Blah, blah. And we got signals, etc. And we're like, how about you? And he says, well, you know, those signs on the progress board, the ones that say like, you know, Munkener, Von, Achtung, Arctic, etc. Uh, versus Nereus. Um, well, I make, I make them. But <laughs> there's the guy who makes the signs that go in the progress board. You realize it's just something you never even think about, but... Uh, <laughs> You know they're really big as well. Yeah, because most people when they, when they see them, they're, it's on the other side of the river, and but you know they're they're, they're big and heavy. <laughs> you, know, you wouldn't you wouldn't think it. Uh, so that's just another little part of the of the of the jigsaw. It's the point, isn't it? For this to work, for this to be this magical place that we've talked about, this sacred water for rowers, this social event for others, this thing where the tribes come together. This, this this thing that is always changing but but always feels the same and always always feels like you're coming home this thing that is very cutting edge now with its drone technology and its live streams and its commentary but which stretches back in history for all of this to work a massive sequence of complex moving parts has to come together every year 
run every year and then be taken down and put away until the next time it comes out. I mean, that's, that's pretty special. The fact that it happens and the magic happens and it happens so seamlessly and so well every year. I mean, I, I'm sure that there must have been issues and problems. And I remember in our first podcast, you, you, you talked about what you actually need in charge of the whole thing is someone who wouldn't panic if a herd of buffalo ran through the competitors' tents. They'd just yeah. go, Heard of Buffalo and the competitors. Fetch the rifles. Yeah, you know, <laughs> contingency. Anti-Buffalo rifles. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's, it's like, it's like the Wizard of Oz, but without the nastiness, you know, you, all of this machinery happens seamlessly to make, to maintain and create this wonderful reality and this wonderful illusion at the same time. And the reality and the illusion are both as equally valuable. Yeah. I realize I'm rowing back because I did an episode on sharp practice and saying that certain people shouldn't be at Henley. But actually, I do genuinely think it's a it's sacred water for rowers. It's a it's a wonderful place. Yeah, are we going to go there? That, that opened up a can of worms, didn't it? No, I I I, I genuinely I don't I I think that we have said our piece on that one. I mean, if, you can weigh in Tess, if you want, Ted. If you've got something to add, absolutely. No, no, I haven't got anything to add. Just what what I've yeah. said, I I'm on, I think I'm on record saying it so no that's fine we can skip over that bit no it's yeah. fine we didn't want to revisit it you know i put it out it was a bit of a solo effort but i did run it past lou and i, I think lou and felt that what i said was was um fairly solid and fairly justified but we want we really wanted to focus on why it's so important for rowers and why it's such an important rowing event yeah. you know uh, as much as the 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 the, sh the shenanigans that that will occasionally happen I'm just, you know, again, another thing that makes it special is, you know, we haven't actually mentioned yet that it's an international event. We haven't really focused on that. You know, compared with all of the other events that we have in this country, this is the, I mean, for instance, here, 1120 in the Temple, Yale B against uh, DSR Lacha of Netherlands. So you've yeah. got two crews which we'll never have seen each other before. You know, so there's, you know, from the other side of the pond, from Europe, and their race, they've come together to race in Britain. Now, that's that's huge. That's going to be a great race. Because, mm. you know, the Dutch always send top-quality crews. I how, they, how they manage to produce so many ultimate specimens of humanity. From they just all seem to be really... How do you not walked around Holland? They're yeah. genuinely huge. I mean, it's not like... I can I can turn around and say, oh yes, I spend a great deal of time in Holland. But one thing I noticed when I was there, it's just like I'm normal size. I'm yeah. possibly even a tiny bit short around here. I think it's, they it's have genuinely the, remarkable. They have the, they're, the, they're the tallest uh, average height of any country in the world. I think the only yeah. the only people that are taller are the Maasai from Africa. They're I wonder why that is. There's got to be a genetic basis because any country that makes Lewin feel small, because let's be quite frankly and brutally honest, in, in the UK, Lewin is just a lanky freak. There's no other way of putting it. And I say that with love. You know, I, I love the man yeah. dearly. But the, yeah, the Dutch are, um, are tall and rangy yeah. people. I've always, felt, I've always felt that um, if I ever want to feel even shorter and fatter than I actually am, then just go and stand in the boat tent area at the Henley Royal Regatta. Yeah, that, if you if if I'm taller than some of the women, then I've had a result. Yeah. yeah, but you know you've got to remember it can work the other way. You can suddenly be presented with, let's say, the Italian pair, of whom the stroke man is only of quite normal height, 
but just such ridiculously large shoulders. You know, it, it's like you can feel the draft as he walks past you <laughs> carrying his bike. It is just, you know, it's, I mean, again, it's one of these places that just there's a concentration of just such physical specimens there, just such incredible athletes. Um, that it really is, it's a little bit, you, you have to sort of get your head around the idea that no matter how good you are, that you no get matter how good you think you are at something, there's always somebody better and you'll probably find them at Henley if you're a raw. Um, yeah, I, I see this year that, um, Australia have sent quite a lot of boats across and, you know, we all know about the competitive nature of Aussie athletes, and it's not just from talking to Drew Jin, it's basically they, they, you know, they seem to have sent over quite a force this year. Yeah, and it's not it's not just the international crews either. I mean, there's just, for instance, 11-10 in the Four League, King's School Parramatta from Australia, yeah. racing Marlow B. Um, we've got a Hanoverian crew. I know, I've noticed that the, the Scots College, not Scotch College, they, they have the mullets, yeah, the Scott College. They're also coming, so more Australians. Uh, so af after a couple of years of um, pandemic, we're, we're we're getting the gatherings of the tribes back together from far and wide. Certainly looks that way. Can I just ask: is there is there any particular event or any particular race that you're that you're looking forward to in particular at the moment? Um, I, well, like lots of them, lots of them. I mean, like there's Britain in the ground against Australia, China, and um, and the USA. So obviously, I hope Britain win. That's a uh, Leander and Brooks crew. Um, I think the Temple will be murder. The competition is so high; it's brutal. Look, look, look at, looking forward to see seeing um, Ollie Zeidler race in the Diamond Skulls. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is he's the he's the favourite. But he's not unbeatable. I mean, yeah, there are, there, are, there are some big boys in that, you know. And also, it like has he done much match racing? You know, it's it's not the same. If you're if all you've ever done, I know, I think he has been to Henley before, but um, it's but, very different. It's, it's very yeah, different I mean, to, to multi lane. Yeah, because you you could have you could well, I mean, I, you know, I won't go into the kind of you know the racing, but compared with a super wide six you know like possibly an eight lane course with six lanes occupied on it then you know everybody's a, lo a long way away and you've got you know you're essentially basically just racing the water yourself and you, just, you, you know you can't kind of turn that you can't turn the knife it's not it, it's, it's a completely different kettle of fish completely different thing but um yeah. so so that and i think the four the 40 is always amazing the qualification of the 40 this year was crazy it was absolutely crazy it was like i don't know like no spaces for 400 crews tried to qualify Something like that, and you know, like when, like for, for instance, uh, ten thirty. Oh, this is actually the PE. This one, not forty, but like St Paul School against the Windsor Boys School. That's at ten thirty. That's in Princess Elizabeth. That'll be a great race because they're both quality outfits. Uh, Windsor Boys School, their top boat will probably be their quad for the forty. Um, the the quality. I, I just can't, every year it's, it just astounds me how good they are. How do how do they get that good by that age? And there's they just sit in a boat. Honestly, we we do it at my school. Um, they schoolboys get obsessed with this sport. They really do. Um, I'm not. Some schoolgirls do as well, but schoolboys just you just see 
from kind of like they start the ones who get really obsessed start early they start in year nine and then you just see kind of you see them change physically obviously they get taller but they get just harder and kind of like they develop this intensity about them that is just and from about the end of year 10 they are plotting their route to the final they are looking around the entire school and saying who can pull hard who who do we have to take out of hockey and they just you know they spend five sessions a week in the boat um they're rowing with the same people what, what did somebody somebody say yeah you've got a you've got a crew that's basically let's say eton or st paul's they've got a thirty thousand pound boat they've got eight boys who are all basically the same size and shape who haven't discovered beer yet and they're all they've all been rowing with each other five times a week for the past five years well, um, that's, the, that's the thing and isn't they're it? just brilliant that's the thing isn't it I, you know as adults and we are all adults even though i pretend to have the mental age of a child and it has been pointed out by some people that that's not just you know a joke that i make we all get obsessed by rowing we still do and we are we are grown men and you know we've paid mortgages and bills and and you know fixed boilers and 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 seen that you know the sink get blocked in the middle of winter and we're still obsessed by it but there's that point in teenage years and it happens to boys and girls and for some boys and girls it's music and for some it's art and for some it's books and for some it's dressing like stevie nicks in the 1970s and for some it's rowing and you and for some people you end up as nick hornby writing the same book over and over again with the same jokes and making lists about everything and for some teenagers they'll discover rowing and it will be be their thing and you you know we saw it at agecroft with the junior world class start you get these these gangly uncoordinated and you think good god no it's just not going to happen and within two years they're, they're just these giants with shoulders and hands that hang down to their knees and they're loose limbed and they're long and they, they go through the water like a knife and it becomes you know like guitars and girls and beer and music and books and going out it can be the obsession of your teenage years and why not it's a it's a pretty healthy one it's, yeah it's incredible the call i mean and, and not just not just the boys calling as well but the uh, the, the golden jubilee for the for the uh for the girls quads they're, they're just they're so technically adept and i mean i just it's just watch them open mouth in open mouth admiration i mean and as well as you know the size of them it's a shame that if you've if people are watching the Henley coverage and they haven't actually been to a rowing event in person and sort of stood anywhere near these people, they don't realise how big they are because there's no sense of there's no sense of scale. Yeah. You know, if you if you have a if you have a, a like a you know an eight that's that's in line to win the PE if it's you know if it's a favourite to win the PE, then the, these people are by definition abnormal. But you can't tell in the boat because unless there's like one that's now and again you get one that's extra big and they like they kind of shows up. <laughs> yeah. But, but but even the even the ones who look small in comparison, they're all, they're still massive. I remember seeing one time I would, um it was at Dorney and I saw the USA eight and it was the it was the World Championships, I think. A good few years ago. And they they were just like wedges. They were like these wedges sort of forced into this boat and they they made the boat look tiny. Made it absolutely tiny. You're thinking, right? How how does all of that like corn-fed American beef 
not sink this tiny little boat, the poor thing. You almost felt sorry for the boat. And shoulders. Well, I'm again like uh, Matthew Pinson. You know, when it, I mean, he's he's obviously still he's a big guy now, you know, because he's because of his frame. But his, you know, his lats. When you used to see him in kit, they. Well, I mean, you could just like he's like if he walks in front of him, it's like an eclipse. It was an it was an odd thing. I mean, I'm six foot two, six foot three. I weigh thirteen and a half stone. I think of myself as an average sized human being because when I joined Agecroft, six foot two was nothing. You know, it was six foot, you know, Big Tom and Craig and Aussie Ben. It was six foot five and, you know, 15 stone, 15 and a, and a, and a half stone. Yeah. If you're called something, if you're called big something in rowing, then you must be a real. Uh, it was, he was lanky. <laughs> he, was, he, he was a big, he was a big lad with a big. Oh, dear. Club, he was big. I, I remember actually. Um, you know, and I've said elsewhere about the, the time that I met Steve Redgrave and, and didn't actually get to say, you know, you got me into rowing because of a certain event that happened between a part of his anatomy and my, my then stepson's forehead. Um, but when I actually met Matthew Pinson for the first time, you kind of see him on the TV and I, I, he was doing an interview and we were, I think it was in 2010 when we were doing the Thames. And I just remember walking past him and just thinking, it's going to take a while to get round him. He's, he was just very big. <laughs> It just you know and you don't get that sense of scale i am particularly i'm i'm going to say this i'm uh, so first of all i'm going to be watching the thames like a hawk um but also i'm particularly looking forward to the goblets mm. um i mean it it's it, i kind of feel like i don't know if it's i've just been paying more attention or whatever but i kind of feel like the british rowing squad is starting to generate a collection of real personalities in there there's tom george there's josh bogowski um they're going to be racing each other with their pairs partners and i'm you know they're very recognizable people you know obviously tom george looks like he's just stepped off the pages of a catalog he's rowing with this bloke who looks like an absolute neanderthal with a beard down to his chest and i'm really really fascinated to see just just basically the gb squad knocking lumps out of each other in pairs going down henley reach it's going to be brilliant it does um, feel like we're starting to build again definitely I think it'll be, I think for me, it'll be Agecroft in the Thames because I want to see if they repeat their boarding maneuver of last year. Um, and I have to keep an eye out for Durham because um, Dan is, is our coach at Tyne and he also coaches at Durham. So, and he's a, he's a, he's a sound, he's a sound person. So I'm hoping that, that, that they do well, but it's yeah, just, we had a great pod with him. Yeah. Having, having, you know, we did, we talked about Henley last year and, and the, and the fact that a lot of the, a lot of the crews came from the, the area and, and what that might mean. And we've talked about the other things that we've talked about this year with regards to, you know, the difference between sharp practice and cheating. And I think it's been really important to celebrate what is a unique event in world sport and flag up some of the reasons why it's magical and why it's so important. And, uh, and Tez, thank you very much for helping us do that.